thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Why do people go bald? Why are baboons' bums red? What's a light year? Why do leaves go brown in the autumn? Why do monkeys like bananas? Why do some things glow in the dark? Why do animals not understand you? Why do my receipts fade after a year? Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientist with me, Sue Marchant and Chris Smith. So, Dr. Chris, our first question this evening, Agnes in Braintree. Heard that in the past that dairy products are not particularly good for colds and flus. What's your verdict? I haven't heard that. Um, I'm not sure what the evidence is that Agnes is referring to that supports that. Um, What we know about colds and flus is that they're caused by viruses. Viruses are the ultimate parasite. They're tiny particles. They measure about one-tenth thousandth of a millimetre each, so they're absolutely minute. They drift around in the air. You breathe them in, um, for the most part. They then find the cell on the surface of the lining of your mouth or nose or throat or, or gut even, which they want to invade, And they do that by locking onto certain molecules that are present on the surfaces of certain cells. And they then invade the cell. And viruses are nothing more than just infectious bags of genes. And they turn on their genes in their cells that they're targeting. Those genes then take over or hijack the cell. They make hundreds of copies, in some cases thousands of copies of the virus in the infected cell. And those viruses then bud out through the surface of the cell and they leave the body. If, you, if it's an, a respiratory virus, then you cough and sneeze it out. If it's a faecal-oral virus, like an enterovirus, for example, it comes out the bottom way, and it goes into the environment, and then someone else picks it up. Now, there's not really any reason why dairy products should make a difference to that process. Um, if you don't have enough good quality nutrients in your diet, you will be immunocompromised. In other words, your immune system won't work as well, and so you might get more coughs and colds and flus, and they might be worse, and they might last for longer, and you might be infectious for longer. But I'm not aware of any specific food types which are associated with being particularly vulnerable or bad for catching more viruses. I think being well-nourished and having a range of good quality foods, including lots of fruit and vegetables and antioxidants, that's definitely good. So the more that you can eat a balanced diet, the healthier you're going to be and the the quicker you're going to get rid of anything that invades your body. Another one here for you, Dr. Chris. Um, Mike in Colchester says, why does closing his eyes make him remember things like his PIN number and signing details for websites like Facebook and everything? How does it help him recall his memory? Well, the way the brain stores information is in neural networks. So you have lots of different nerve cells that are all connected together and In amongst those connected nerve cells is something a bit like the card file system at the library. And if you want to find a book, you go to the card file system, or you did once before we had computers, and in a drawer somewhere there'll be a little card which will tell you which shelf to go to to retrieve your book. And memories are a bit similar. So you have clusters of nerve cells that tell your brain where certain pieces of information are stored and how to recall that information by linking together different bits of information from different bits of the brain, uniting it to make the furnished full memory. Now, the problem is that the visual system 
is a very dominant sense. It takes up a huge amount of processing power. Roughly one-third of your brain is devoted entirely just to processing the information that comes in through your eyes. So it's a very neurologically hungry sense. And that means that a lot of your attention is diverted to paying attention to the visual system. It's the sense that we rely on more than anything else to get around the world and to avoid danger, interact with people, find a mate and so on. So not surprisingly, it saps our attention. That's why television is so compelling. We shouldn't be saying that on the radio, should we? <laughs> but the point is that if you close your eyes, you reduce the flow of stimulus or information in through the visual system, and this means that the brain can pay more attention or it can turn up the volume on information coming from other stimuli or other bits of the brain, and it means you can concentrate better. Some people find that it's very distracting to have the visual world playing in their mind all the time. By closing your eyes, you reduce that distraction, and that means you can concentrate a bit better on getting back at a certain kind of memory. And uh, it certainly works for me. I get very easily distracted. Closing my eyes, cutting myself off from that kind of stimulus definitely helps me remember things. Mm. All right, well, we've got uh, on the phones now, we've got Mark, who's in Dunstable. Hello, Mark. Hello, good evening, Sue. Hello, Dr. Chris. Hello, Mark. How are you? Um, about uh, three years ago, my sister contracted MS. But I saw a programme by Steve Backshaw on the King Cobra. And what it was all about, to, to cut a long story short, it was the fact that in the third world, anti-venine is not only sort of very expensive and hard to get for the poor people, but it's very, it's not always such a great cure. You've got to be on life support when you're given it and stuff. But there's this root that grows in tropical countries. I think it must be some relative for the ginseng root. What it does is any neurotoxin from any snake, it totally, um, if you take an infusion of this, this liquid each day, it recognises the cobra venom, the anti-neural anti, uh, venom. You know, as you know, it goes in and it puts like a wooden block between the electric cells, and so there's, there's no stimuli gets through. And I just wondered, I've heard nothing about it. I know there's a lot of work going on with venines in, in diabetes, with, with lizard, with uh, um, Gila monsters and, and stuff, diabetes. But uh, I just wondered... You know, could it have the same effect? I know MS is where the brain seems to go crazy and attack its own its own nervous system, but I just wonder whether this... Chris, what do you reckon? Well, people are using venoms to understand a lot about how the nervous system works. So uh, there are various venoms that have been instrumental in helping us to understand the connections and synapses and, tr and nerve transmission uh, in, in the brain. Sea snake venom, bungarotoxin, is really useful for that. But they're also being used therapeutically, and there are certain examples of diseases, including brain tumours, which can be killed by certain types of venom. Scorpion venom has been used in the past, and, and maybe even some snake venoms. The way these venoms work is they're proteins, they're very small proteins, and when you put them into the body, they go round in the bloodstream, and they damage various tissues and cells, usually by making holes in the membranes of those cells, so the cells either die or they go inside the cells by pretending to be something the cell wants. They get taken up, get put inside the cell, and then they disable the cell's ability to make new proteins. So basically the cells then die, because without a supply of proteins to provide all the machines that keep a cell running, cells pretty quickly die. But in the context of multiple sclerosis... 
This is a disease which is known as an autoimmune condition. It's where the immune system, for some reason, decides that one key component of the sheath, the myelin, this is a fatty material that insulates nerve fibres, this is decided that, despite being part of your body, it must be foreign. And the immune system, for whatever reason, in people who get MS, uh, it attacks that tissue, and it attacks it relentlessly. And the tissue gets destroyed or very severely damaged. People have a flare-up. They get very disabling symptoms. And then, sometimes even without any kind of treatment, the effect is damped down. Then the brain repairs itself because there are stem cells that can put that myelin back. The person gets a degree of recovery. And then, a little bit later, it might flare-up again. In some people, it never does. But the thing that scientists are discovering now is that it might be possible to reprogram the immune system to stop it doing that in the first place. And on The Naked Scientist last week, yeah. it might be possible if you go to BBC iPlayer to get last week's, from Sunday's, Naked Scientist. We talked to a researcher who is developing vaccines for MS. What they found is that in the same way is if you give someone who has, say, hay fever or peanut allergy... Yeah exposure to very tiny amounts of the thing they're allergic to, you can stimulate the immune system to uh, become tolerant. In other words, it produces what are called regulatory T-cells. These are T-cells that damp down the immune response. That's right. And so they're trying to do the same thing in people who have multiple sclerosis, and they have had modest success. Mm. They're able to turn down the inflammation that happens, and people have fewer flare-ups. Now, it's it's early days, it's experimental, but still very encouraging. Yeah. Oh, good. All right, Mark? Yeah, thank you very much. Now, uh, Chris, Harry has says, can you ask, Chris, do all bees die when they sting someone? Do they make honey because he has seen a bee sting uh, someone fly off to pollinate trees? And he's also tasted wild honey made by wasps. Chris? Um, I don't think all bees do die when they sting someone. Necessarily. You can never say never in in science because Mm. someone will always come up with an exception. The reason bees do die is because they have evolved to have stings that are barbed. And those barbs mean that when the sting goes in, to make sure that the sting delivers its poison, it's barbed. And that means that it stays in. And when the person swats the bee away or the bee flies away, this leads to the back end of the bee being pulled off or detached. But the venom gland, which is... Uh, providing the supply of venom which goes down the middle of the sting which is hollow remains attached and it's under autonomous control so you'll see if you watch this in in a person who's been stung you may even see the uh, venom sac trying to contract or move of its own accord and that's what pumps the venom down into the uh, site where the person's actually been stung Um, bees evolved that because uh, this ensured that when individuals animals usually were trying to steal their honey historically that what would happen is that the individual would not forget the experience because they would get well and truly stung. And this obviously translated into a benefit for the bees and it was worth sacrificing some members of the colony in order to make sure that the stings were effective. Whereas if you didn't have those kind of strategies, then it would be possible to swat the bees away and the stings would be less intense and and the reward of the honey that the animal or even the early human was going for would still be worth it. So it's an evolutionary pressure that's driven that. But I think there are some species of bee which do still have unbarbed stings. I think um, some bees even don't have stings at all. I think there are Australian native bees which are very, very tiny they're, they're about a quarter of the size of honeybees that we have in this country, but they don't have stings at all, I don't think. 
um, or at least I don't use them. Because when I lived in Australia, uh, the person whose flat I lived in had a tiny hive, and it's about a quarter of the size. It's like a miniature hive um, that these Australian native bees live in, and they make tiny amounts of honey, but it's very, very sweet and very, very delicious. Um, I can't comment on wasps. I'm not aware that they make very much honey, if any. I don't think they do. Um, If they do, please tell me about it. It sounds fascinating. Mm. Tad has sent an email in. Uh, He wants to ask about the deadly, I think it's iricondi. Is it jellyfish? Probably talking about irukandji. Irukandji. Uh, these are very tiny jellyfish. They're about the size of the end of your little finger. Mm-hmm. They're barely visible in the water. Oh. And they come seasonally along the shores of Australia, and specifically the northeast of Australia, so the Queensland coast, and sometimes they make it quite far south. And in recent years, they've actually come much further south than they would do normally, which some people have suggested might be a consequence of changing ocean currents because of climate change. Um, They're actually really, really toxic, as in, if you get stung by one, you probably are going to die. And the, the severity of the threat is, well, Hollywood has been a victim, not because someone died, but they were filming a film uh, out in uh, Fraser Island, which is off the east coast of Australia, and the film was Fool's Gold. It had Kate Hudson in it. This mm-hmm. is March 2000-ish. Mm. The filming had to be stopped because when they were uh, screening the water just to make sure it was okay, someone found one, one of these Irukandji. Mm. And uh, they're so deadly that uh, if, you, if you get stung, it's basically curtains. And with people worth millions of pounds in insurance, they wouldn't risk it. So they had to defer and, and uh, wait, wait on the filming schedule until the water cooled down and these things went back up north and uh, then they could carry on. All right, well, um, yeah, Tad wonders whether about the whales um, have an immunity to the sting because they seem to inhabit the same, same waters as them without ill effects. Yes. Um, the way these things actually kill people is that they have tiny tentacles which are decorated or dotted with these tiny miniature hypodermic syringes called nematocysts. And when they come close to the surface of the skin, these things are spring-loaded and they deploy this tiny barb into the skin and it discharges rather like a bee sting I suppose but on a smaller scale um, the poison which then goes into the body and it has various effects. Now I think whales are probably less vulnerable because they're thin their skin is really really thick. Um, If you look at the thickness of a whale's skin and the blubber underneath it's inches thick. It's thicker than the insulation that you put in your loft. Um, So whales probably are less vulnerable for the simple reason that their skin is like a doormat. It's really, really thick. But an interesting story about Irukandji. Um, I came across this when, when I was actually in Australia, and there's a lady who works in Queensland. Her name's Lisa Gershwin. She's actually a relative of the famous George Gershwin, the American wow. pianist. And she is studying these things because, A, people want to know how you can reverse the effects of the toxin, but also, and we've already sort of mentioned this already on the show this evening, talking about how sometimes venoms can be very, very useful because if we study how they work, they tell us things about the secret workings of different aspects of the body that we didn't know about before. Well, an interesting observation that was made uh, about people who got stung by irukandji is that... uh, When they were male, very often they would end up dying but sporting the most amazingly large erection. And this led people to suspect that there might be a natural form of Viagra in this venom somewhere. So they're actually screening the venom for various chemicals because the venom isn't just one toxin, it's a mixture of things. So they're screening through to find out what the chemical is that has this Viagra-like property. The idea being that you could work out what that is 
get rid of the nasty bits and then you'd have a really fantastic uh, form of Viagra uh, which you could then use therapeutically in people who have a problem in that department. If you're enjoying Ask the Naked Scientist, then you might like to check out The Naked Scientist, our regular roundup of the world's best science. Each week we take a look at the latest science news, talk to top researchers working at the coalface of discovery, and also get our hands dirty with a science experiment that you can join in with too. So make it a date and prepare to strip down science on the web at nakedscientist.com slash podcast. Um, we've got um, Mike who um, asked a question earlier. He said, where does dust come from? Well, dust is chiefly us. If you tot up how many skin cells we've got and how many we haven't got every minute, you're, you're shedding thousands, perhaps 30,000, 40,000 skin cells every minute from the surface of your body. These are just dead, dried up husks of cells because the skin, the surface layer of which, which is in contact with the outside world, is just flattened dead cells and we shed them. They fall off and they drop into the environment. So over the course of a lifetime, if you tot up how much you lose in dead skin, it weighs about two or three stone of just dead material that's fallen off your body. And in your house, this stuff builds up. It builds up in carpets, walls, beds, mattresses, pillows, all over the place, decorated with dead skin. And this means that when you come along and disturb it or the room gets warm, sunlight coming in and so on, the dust gets stirred up. So the chief component of dust in houses is us, bits of us that have dropped off. Um, in other environments, of course, dust can be down to whatever's in the local environment. So if you're in caves and things or building sites, obviously there's mineral dusts there too, which, which can play a role. In the garden, there might be dust from dirt and plant produce. But on the whole, in houses, it's all down to dirty old us. Hmm. All right, well, I'll have to go and have a, um, a dust round when I get home in that case. Well, you'll just stir it up. Of course, one, one thing that it does do is to feed microorganisms. And uh, one famous group of organisms that uh, most people have heard of are the house dust mites. These are tiny organisms that live in the furnishings and they eat the dead skin. So they go around gathering it up and eat it and then they poop out into the environment the waste products and that's what people who have asthma re uh, are reacting to they have an allergy to the feces of the house dust mite so getting rid of your own skin from your house and bedding and so on is a good way to get rid of dust mites and that then means you'll have less problems with allergy let's go to the phones now uh, we've got les on the line from over hello les hello yeah um, what i was wondering is if somebody's liking of something you know that turns one person on to another you know the attractive young lady against somebody's love for the wildlife you know they do anything to save the badger or the ferret or whatever and um could the various things be detected in different parts of the brain or does it all come from one emotional center of the brain oh i see so what you're saying is the things that we find pleasurable in life the things we extract pleasure from is that just one site in the brain or do different behaviors originate in different brain centers yeah i think it's a mixture of both there is certainly a pleasure center in the brain this is called the nucleus accumbens it's part of a group of nerve fibers cluster of nerve cells called the striatum which is deep within the core of the brain it's in it's a it's roughly in, in the very middle of your brain, actually. And when these nerve cells are triggered off, they, they give you sensations of pleasure. And the nerve transmitter chemical that seems to be responsible is dopamine. Uh, so when nerve cells make dopamine, 
then you have a sense of well-being and reward. And this is also supported by another brain chemical called serotonin, which keeps your mood up. So between the two of them, this is responsible for making you feel aroused and happy and motivated, and then dopamine rewards you. And the reason we have reward circuits in the brain is that's how we learn things. Um, we don't. We weren't evolved to learn to read and write. It's a it's a byproduct of the fact that in order for us to be able to survive, we have to reward ourselves for doing the right thing. So when you're hungry and you get some food, it feels good to eat it because you give yourself a little chemical reward in your brain. It's not your stomach feeling full at all. It's actually your brain fooling you into thinking you feel better because you've eaten. It's giving you a little reward, encouraging you to eat. When you go and get thirsty, you have a glass of water. You have a little surge of dopamine in your brain, and that says, well done, you've taken a nice drink, and now you feel better. And so we're just sort of victims of our own self-inflicted rewards, really. And when people take drugs, what that's actually doing is subverting this reward system. So it short-circuits it. And when people, say, take cocaine or other drugs of abuse, this produces large amounts of this dopamine chemical in this part of the brain and makes you feel very good. So basically you're rewarding yourself for doing something bad, and that's why people get hooked on drugs. Um, now, in terms of behaviours and where they come from, well, this is a bit more complicated. The end product can be reward, but why you actually choose to behave in certain ways in certain situations is much more complicated. It's down to uh, basically a part of the brain called the limbic system. This is what drives your sort of animal instincts, your motivation, and another part of the brain, the amygdala, which works out uh, whether you're frightened of things or not. And so there's a, a combination of conscious input from the front part of your brain plus your animal instincts underneath, which together decide what you're going to do under certain circumstances. And I think certain people that have certain personality disorders, people that have certain antisocial behaviours, perhaps they have pathways in the brain which have become overdeveloped or overstimulated, and that's why they then make the wrong default choices. They don't think uh, what's the appropriate thing to do. They behave abnormally. Ah, well, yeah, sounds... Fair enough. Okay, Liz? Okay. Yeah, okay, thank All you. Right. Thank you, thank you very much. Anna sends an email in to say, um, could you ask Dr Chris, what is the difference between an MRI scan and a CAT scan and what they both will reveal about the person? Um, I'd like to know, because when our, our son asks the doctor if he can have a scan to see what is causing his problems, they say it will only show up old injuries. Good question. Thanks, Anne. Chris? Uh, the, the reason um, that, that these things have these names, CAT stands for Computer Aided Tomography. So that takes a long time to say. So people say CAT scan. Uh, this is one of the first generations of three-dimensional scanning that could be done on the human body. It uses X-rays. The way it works is that a person lays uh, in the path of an X-ray beam which is fired through the body from multiple different directions. So the X-ray gun spins around the body, firing X-rays through the body to a detector on the opposite side. And because the path of the X-rays is going through the body from many different directions, by adding together all of those X-ray signals, you can build up a three-dimensional picture of the inside of the body. The problem with the CT scan is that it does expose the person to a lot of ionising radiation. X-rays are ionising radiation. If you're exposed to lots and lots of them over a lifetime, this carries a risk of cancer. So doctors try to minimise the exposure to therapeutic X-rays and CT scans. MRI is the newest generation of scanning, and this doesn't use X-rays. It uses magnetism, and for that reason we think it's safer because magnetic 
radiation is well magnets are not viewed as ionizing they're not thought to have the same damaging effects on dna so they're not thought to be linked to cancers at this time and the way an mri scanner works is that you have an incredibly powerful magnet a superconducting magnet which you keep very very cold with liquid helium inside the the x-ray the uh, mri scanner and this very powerful magnet is so powerful that it makes all of the water molecules in your body line up like a compass with the magnetic field of the scanner and then the mri scanner sends a brief pulse of radio waves into the person in a thin slice through their body mm. and what this does is to knock some of those lined up water molecules off kilter and then a fraction of a second later they all flip back into line with the magnetic field again but as they do so they give out some radio signal because they've had to obviously move back in a magnetic field and if something moves in a magnetic field it will emit some energy and the scanner picks up those very tiny signals coming from all those different water molecules which are all rearranging themselves in line with the magnetic field again and it uses that to build up a picture of the inside of the body and by doing that in lots of different slices along the whole length of the body the MRI scanner builds up a three-dimensional picture of what's inside the body and it's an amazing scanning technique it means that you can see an amazing detail the inside of your brain i mean i went and did an mri scan on myself because i took part in a trial i wanted to mm. uh, to see what the inside of my brain looked like and it's just amazing that you get these pictures where no one has ever seen and you can just see in exquisite detail what you look like on the inside and it's just awe inspiring and this means that doctors now can diagnose things so much better without even having to go anywhere near the patient. I don't have to lay a finger on a patient, no need to stick needles in and make holes in people. Painless, you can just see in beautiful, exquisite detail inside the body. It's an amazing thing. Mm. Right, now, um, there's one question here um, from uh, Mike. He says, um, thanks for answering the question. And he wonders why the human race has progressed and evolved so much. Could it be to do with our drive to better ourselves? Uh, yes, I think that uh, there is an innate drive in people to want to learn and understand the world around them and that's why we're scientists that's why we're interested in science and we take an interest in the world around us and at the end of the day that's what's made us an incredibly successful species we're the most successful species that the earth has ever had um, we've taken over the planet unfortunately we are not necessarily sufficiently intelligent to realize this will probably lead to our destruction if mm. we don't do something about what we're doing to the earth because we're currently consuming resources at the rate of two planet earths so in other words if we carry on business as usual we're actually burning up our reserves as if we have two planets not just one so we're cruising for a bruising in that respect but no i think there is this sort of innate drive in us to want to better ourselves um, and whether that means through acquisition of knowledge through acquisition of money so we can buy nice things or have a, a roof over our heads, make life good for our families and so on. That must be true because it doesn't really matter where you look on the world. You will find people who have this desire to look after themselves and look after their family and their fellow people. We're a very social species and I think that um, learning about the world around us is, is what makes us so successful and, and uh, every, every culture that's ever existed has had that in, sort of interest in the world around them and I think that's, that's part of our success. Mm. Um, one here from uh, Ken who's uh, on the roads. He says, just listening to you, um, he says his sister has MR. He doesn't really understand it. Is it curable? Could you tell him a little bit more about it, Chris? Well, I'm going to have to guess. I think he may be referring to mitral regurgitation, MR. 
Um, this is a heart condition where the left uh, atrium, which is one of the four chambers of the heart, is connected to the left ventricle via uh, a valve called the mitral valve. And so when the ventricle contracts to squirt blood into the aorta, the body's main blood vessel, which then carries the blood around the rest of the body, sometimes that valve fails. And instead of blood whooshing out just into the aorta, some go squirting backwards into the left atrium again. And this, if it gets severe, can cause problems because it can mean that the heart has to work much harder than it would otherwise do to supply the needs of the body. So this can put people into a state of heart failure. Mm. It can also make them quite short of breath. Um, and that's if it's severe. And it can be caused by, in older people who've had rheumatic fever, it can be caused by that. So uh, it's rarer these days than it once was, but it can be repaired and you can have a mitral valve replacement. Scientists, doctors come up with a um, v- variety of ways to repair or replace these valves and cardiothoracic surgeons will go in and they take out the disease valve and they can put the artificial one in and then the person feels much better. Mm. Uh, one very l- last one then. Um, Adrian in Peterborough says, um, when cows pass wind, is it bad for the ozone layer? And what about us humans if we're a bit windy? Is it the same? Um, well, there are many millions of cows on Earth um, if you if you do this sort of calculation, we think there's roughly three times the weight of cows on Earth that there are humans. Wow. And cows produce prodigious amounts of gas mm. from their digestive tract. The gas they produce is, well, a lot of things, hydrogen sulfide's in there, methane's in there, carbon dioxide's in there, but it's the methane that's the real baddie because methane is many, many tens of times worse for the environment than CO2 because it's a greenhouse gas. And although greenhouse gases are a bit bad for the ozone layer because if you affect the temperature of the planet, the efficiency of ozone production changes, actually cows are really bad for the planet because of the methane they produce and also the slurry they produce. So the methane that they fart out goes into the atmosphere and produces uh, a greenhouse effect, but then the slurry they produce also then breaks down and produces more CO2, adding insult to injury. And there's billions of tonnes of it produced every year, honestly. And so that whole thing is a recipe for disaster for the planet. Most of those cows exist because we keep them to eat them and also for their milk. So if we all went vegetarian overnight, one physicist has said to me that we could cut our CO2 emissions by 20% overnight if the whole world became vegetarian and we got rid of all the cows. That's it for this week. Our doctors will be back with me next week for more Ask the Naked Scientist. But don't forget you can also catch them on the Naked Scientist podcast, which you can find on the Naked Scientist website, www.nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. 